Welcome to the Clemson Dubcast. It is Friday, January 19th at TigerIllustrated.com. Today, from yours truly, a column on what is up with Clemson's basketball team. Spent some time Thursday on the phone to get some insight from behind the scenes. I don't think it's panic time yet, but certainly some questions about this team that you're kind of a little surprised to be asking, given what we saw earlier in the season. My good friends Blake Smith and Brooke Archenhold have been part of the podcast since the beginning, way back in August of 2018. They have an accomplished team of personal injury attorneys at Parm Smith and Archenhold based in Greenville. They are Clemson people, and their skillful attorneys have decades of experience in complicated litigation matters, taking a special interest in medical malpractice, nursing home abuse, and neglect car accident cases that have left the individuals involved in serious trouble. For a free consultation at Parm Smith and Archenhold, call 864-990-4581 or online at parhamlaw.com. That's P-A-R-H-A-M law.com. When you're ready for a complete renovation in your home or business, open the door to more with Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Their local experience team will totally transform any room space from beautiful floor coverings to construction to finished details. Harris handles every step of your renovation process, whether it's a kitchen or living room or an industrial or educational setting, like some of the positively stunning work they've done at Clemson University. Go to discoverharris.com and experience a total renovation transformation from Harris Home and Harris Commercial. Solero Communications, formerly known as Tandem Payment, is a full-service integrated electronic payments provider powered by leading-edge technology. Solero provides a wide array of merchant solutions, simplified payments. They make onboarding, taking payments, maintaining risk management and compliance, and getting support quick and easy. At Solero, they're all about helping you achieve sustainable growth as a business. Taking payments isn't the only thing your business needs. With Solero's solution, You can manage inventory, sell products and services via social media, schedule staff, track sales, get reports, and much, much more. Find out more about Solero at solerocommerce.com. That's C-E-L-E-R-O commerce.com. Okay, Chris Lowe, one of the most connected people in the business, certainly the most connected when it comes to all things Nick Saban. Great stuff here, recounting last week, also just assessing the state of things in college football. Really enjoyed this. Here we go. All right, joined by my longtime good friend Chris Lowe of ESPN. How you doing, sir? Larry, it's always good to be with you, man. Catch up. Yes, and I, I thank you. And I mean, I know you're um, you are a busy man, and so I don't take these uh, these opportunities for granted that you give me. Um, I probably don't deserve them, um, but I just uh, over the last week or so. In light of recent events, uh, most notably in Tuscaloosa, I'm like, man, uh, this would be a great conversation <laughs> to talk about some of this stuff that has happened. No, I am. Um, I'm always good uh, talking with you. We, as you say, we go back a long ways. And I just, um, I, I'm a lot like you. I, I find it fascinating how quickly and how much college football has changed over the last, gosh, just the last five years, really. And oh, man, yes. Yeah, where we are and the comings and goings, and not just players, but coaches and and how uh, players sort of are empowered to the point now where if you have one coach leave, certainly a, a really established coach like a Saban, I think the same thing would happen if, let's say, if Kirby Smart were to take the Falcons job tomorrow with the way you got that window there, that 30-day window where kids can transfer and play right away, I mean, every school that loses a coach of note probably is going to have to go through, to some degree, 
what Alabama is right now. Is it kind of problematic to make the to 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 say that put on equal terms the the idea of you mentioned player empowerment, of course player movement, a big part of that. And I see various voices sort of using the premise of, well, you know, coaches have been allowed to have freedom of movement for a long time, so it's only fair that, you know, why should we be upset if players are doing the same thing? But it's not the same thing. (laughs) You know, coaches have contracts. (laughs) Yeah, it's not apples to apples. You're exactly right. And and it's, uh, you know, coaches have um, their ramifications for coaches if they leave, buyouts. I mean, I'll give you two real examples. Dan Lanning at Oregon, who was, you know, certainly his name was, was bandied about in an Alabama job, had a $22 million buyout. So had he left or for anywhere, um, he would have owed $22 million, or somebody would have owed Oregon $22 million. Kalen DeBoer, who took the Bama job, had a $12 million buyout. So these guys are contractual employees by the university. I'm talking about coaches. Now, I'm not going to sit here and say that coaches don't chase money because Mm -hmm. they do. They absolutely 1,000% do. But, no, it's not an apples-to-apples argument because players right now are free to move about as many times as they want without any ramifications. They don't have to set out a year. They're not employees. And maybe the answer is to make them employees and and have contracts and salary caps. I know a lot of people are fighting that, but – how many, you know, you covered Clemson for a long time. How many hours a week do you think someone like a Barrett Carter or um, any of their players spend in football, practicing, watching film, getting uh, treatment to be ready to play, et cetera? What would, what would be your ballpark figure? Well, Chris, the rules say less than 20. So it'd have to be yeah. less than 20, right? <laughs> Well, everybody follows the rules in college football, right? I mean, it's just, that's one of the preposterous things is that like, I mean, come on, it's a full-time job. I mean, it's, it's at least 40 hours, right? Everything, everything included. Travel, games. If you're playing a week, a weekend game away from home, travel. Um, Now guys can take their iPads and go up in their room and watch film all they want. And that's, that's not, supposed to count but you know we we know players we've heard stories and you've written stories about guys who are hurt who maybe have a high ankle sprain and they're in the complex for eight hours a day uh, trying to get treatment just so they can play or, or, or be closer to ready to play that saturday so does that count um you, you know so i yeah you're right I, to, to, it's preposterous to think that, that most kids spend only 20 hours a week on practicing or getting ready or preparing to play football. And, and, you know, there's, there's quote unquote voluntary workouts this summer. There's nothing voluntary about it except in name only. And I'm not, listen, I'm not one of those who says, you know, woe is the players. Those guys get uh, the best medical care in the world. Mm -hmm. They get unbelievable academic support tutoring, which they should because they're, they're so busy playing football. They're fed like Kings. Uh, There's so many things and they get their education paid for. Everybody everybody says, well, that's, that doesn't equate to what they should make because they're, you know, the school's making millions of dollars. And and I agree with all that, but it's not like, 
they don't get anything. And I think if you're smart enough to go there, get your degree, stay out of trouble, do what you're what you're asked to do. You know, a kid at Clemson, a kid at Alabama, a kid at Ohio State, they're always going to be able to go back and have tons of opportunities if football doesn't work out. And how many how many of these kids ever play professional football? Percentage of them. And I think NIL, in theory, makes a lot of sense because you, if you're a linebacker who starts for two or three years for Clemson and you got a chance to make $100,000 a year, let's just use that as a as a ballpark figure and you're there. And so you're, you're picking up 300 grand. Well, that's going to help you as you get out of college. If you never play it down in the NFL, that's going to help you. And if you've earned that, if you've gotten on campus and you, you earn a starting job and you're a, a productive contributor to that team, then you ought to be able to get some money. I think that's, that's what most people agree on, right? What they don't agree on is what's happening, happening now and what was always going to happen and that NIL name, image, and likeness, a player capitalizing on his name, image, and likeness was going to become a bidding process for players out of high school. And probably most important, and this is the thing that coaches hate the most, Larry, and you know it, is now that the portal is wide open, it is essentially free agency and it's wide open. There are no rules or no ramifications. Everyone tampers. I say everyone. Most people tamper. Every kid gets in the portal. They have an attorney. They have an agent. Um, you go read on our site or anybody else's site where a kid's quoted is talking about it. Well, that's set up by that kid's agent mm-hmm. that he's got chances to go to Texas or Tennessee or Michigan to visit. All that is run by some slash, you know, quote unquote NIL attorney or agent. That's what drives coaches crazy because you're constantly having to re-recruit your kids, and they're saying, "Hey, coach." I got a chance to go visit school X, school Y, and school Z, and each one of them is offering me this deal and that deal and this deal. Now, is any of that real? Is part of it real? Is none of it real? That's what's sort of making it so difficult right now to really manage rosters and keep any kind of uniformity within the sport and with your team. Yeah, we just had last week on the podcast – his name is C.D. Davies. He heads up Clemson's recently sort of reconfigured collective. It's called the 110 Society. And that's his thing. And I know, you know, it's, it's funny. You hear every school out there, you know, according to them, it's like, oh, well, we're doing it the right way. And everybody else is – you never hear right. anybody say, oh, yeah, uh-huh. we're, we're tampering, you know, or – or, yeah, we're doing actual pay-for-play. It's always – it's everybody gnashing their teeth over other schools, not their own. But I think the record is pretty, I guess, fairly convincing that Clemson is more reluctant, you know, with their culture of, you know, Dabo has said, you know, we don't want to lead with NIL – we want, you know, we don't want NIL to be the reason that players come here, but we don't want it to be, um, we don't want it to be the, to, it to be the reason they leave. So in essence, when you're recruiting a high school guy, you know, the, the, the big thing that they roll out during the recruitment is more about the holistic parts of it. You know, we're going to help your kid become a man. And, you know, when he's 30, he's going to have a job and this and that. And the type of 
normally the player who his if his first question is as a recruit is what kind of deal can you give me you know that's uh sounds like a dog is kind of interested in some nil uh he's pretty there. he's getting pretty upset about what you're talking about right now he, he's not a believer uh, sounds like a first take or Stephen a uh <laughs> um anyway barking dog <laughs> We could go a long way with bark, that. Who could bark the loudest, right? <laughs> but uh, it's more like if, if the player comes in as a recruit, you know, saying the first question is, what kind of deal can you give me? Relationship's probably not going to go very far with Dabo and Clemson versus if a player comes in and establishes himself on the field and then he gets approached by somebody else or slashed, you know, tampered with then it's like, okay, we, we don't want to lose you. We'll, we'll we'll work to try to get you a better deal. But one of the things that C.D. Davies talked about last week was, you know, it's it's fairly common to have a recruit or a player say, yeah, this school A is offering me this. And the first question he asks is, do you have it in writing? And it's usually no, right. because it can't be in writing. And so you've got to be really careful um, at what they're saying you'll make, because that often is not perhaps um, what you're actually going to get. There's a lot more to it. Yeah. Now, there's not a lot of easy answers, and I, I don't think it's, it's probably not fair to, to lump it all in one cookie-cutter um, issue. I think some schools are doing it the right way. Some schools are, are cheating their rear ends off. Uh, and then there's those schools in the middle. I, I know this, it's hard. And I think Clemson and Dabo are finding this out. It's hard now to stay at an elite level unless you're pretty aggressive in, in the NIL world, collective world. It just is. I mean, you do, because the large majority of kids are going to want to know. They're going to want to know what kind of deal they can get. They're going to want to be paid mm-hmm. uh, comparable money to, you know, if I'm a great linebacker, or edge rusher at Clemson, then I sure say, you know, kids all talk, you know, we talk in the media, right? I mean, they know what someone's allegedly making or supposedly making at North Carolina or Tennessee or Florida state. And if they're just as productive and they're not making that kind of cash. And again, the hard part is you don't know what's real and what's, what's fantasy, but uh, you, you've got to be pretty aggressive in that world. I think now, to be an elite program. Now, will it change down the road? Is it sustainable? All those are questions that, you know, you hear, I don't know. And I certainly don't have any faith that Congress is going to be able to figure it out. Uh, that, to me, that's a pipe dream, but it's a, um, it's just where we are right now. And, and Dabo has been very consistent. I've talked to him about it, that he is not going to change the way he runs his program. You know, he's not going to bid for players. You know, he's not going to get into the, you know, trying to entice players to come to Clemson from other schools. Uh, if people reach out, you know, certainly he's going to listen. And he still hasn't taken me transfers. Um, he has had some guys leave over this, this year, but he's just, uh, he's, he's a firm believer that his system works. Granted, they didn't have a great year this year. And everybody's going to point to that and say, well, see, Davo is getting left behind. Well, I, I don't think you can truly assess any of this, Larry. You know, what works, what doesn't work? Is this a disaster? Is, there, is it going to get any better? Is it sustainable? I don't think we have a big, big enough body of work yet mm-hmm. in the NIL transfer world to really make some hard and fast judgments. It's all new to everybody. Let's see where we are 
two, three years from now. And I think then you have a better idea of what's what. Yeah. And, and, um, I agree. And, and one of the sort of layers to that is as you're talking about that sort of the temptation, uh, for just to judge right away and to, you know, that's just where we are in our sort of public conversation about everything, you know, back in late September, when Clemson played Florida State in the regular season, it was viewed as, okay, this is maybe could be viewed as a referendum, you know, between two uh, highly contrasting styles of roster construction and management in Norvell, who was, you know, the portal king, and then Dabo, who's the, uh, I guess, <laughs> the, the leader in portal abstinence, so to speak. Um, not abstinence, but just more not as, I think it's fair to say, not as aggressive. Well, Florida State wins that game in Death Valley, and it seemed like every every game-changing play they made was made by someone who they got from the portal. So, yeah, probably fair to say, man, this is uh, maybe not a um, – this is maybe perhaps a mark against Dabo's philosophy, but if you fast-forward to the present, you just look at what's going on elsewhere. If you're in, if you're in Dabo's shoes – you look at Florida State, they just got hammered last week by the NCAA. You look at, I don't know, Michigan, you know, like they're, uh, I'm guessing they're, they're going to have to vacate something at some point. You look at, you look at the GOAT who just retired, and I'd be shocked if a part of that, a part of what was pushing him away was not um, some of this the transactional nature of things with a procession of your own players coming to you. Whereas, you know, traditionally you're used to telling the player, all right, this is what you got to do. You know, the pros and the cons, the constructive criticism, and you're the coach and he's got to conform to what you do to now the, the, the frequency of players who are like, Hey man, I need a better deal or I need more touches or whatever. And this is not me yelling at clouds. It's just the, the reality is it logical getting back to the referendum thing to then say, well, Hey, maybe this is a check Mark for Dabo's way, because I, I don't think he has near the frequency of guys coming into his office, even though of course he has some saying, Hey, I need a, I need a better deal coach or I need this or that. Does that all that make sense to you? Yeah, I would say Dabo, when he meets with these guys, is pretty upfront about, listen, if, if you're coming here to get a big deal, we're probably not for you. If you're coming here to, you know, better yourself, to get a degree, to, to have a chance to go play in the NFL, because Dabo's track record's pretty good at sending guys to the NFL. and has been. Um, and, and once you get here and, and earn it, we, we have a, a really good collective. and You're going to have your chances to make money. I'd, I'd say that's his approach, but now that's not everybody's approach. And yeah, I, I would agree that if, if a guy gets there and the first thing he wants to know is, Hey coach, now it's going to take this in the first year and that, that in the second year, that's probably, he's probably not going to be one that's at the top of, of Clemson's board, but I still think that they're going to, they're going to recruit guys that they feel like they need to win at the highest level. And will they, you know, just like the NFL people do, they mark guys off the board because they just don't feel like they're going to fit in their culture or there's, there's check marks against them or in, in the case you're talking about, that's all they're talking about. It's money and deals. Yeah. I think that absolutely happens at Clemson. 
with, with Dabo. And I just, I repeat what I said a minute ago. I, I'm not ready to point my finger at this school or that school or a way someone's doing it versus a way they're not doing it and saying, all right, here's the poster child for the way it's going to be in football going forward. And, and here's the way you can't do it. Cause I just don't think, again, we have enough of a body of work. Uh, if Clemson continues to hover around eight wins over the next couple of years, then, then yeah, it's, it's probably, that's probably enough evidence that they have, they're just not going to be able to compete unless they change their philosophy. But again, I don't know if, if what we see now is really truly sustainable. Are people going to continue to give the kind of money yeah. to collectives that, that we're seeing paid out? I mean, I've heard stories now of, of schools that are way out of their skis on what they have in their collectives versus what they have promised recruits and what they've said, hey, we can give you this. Uh, we just saw a kid from Texas A&M, uh, one of the top-rated defensive line in the country, two years ago, Walter Nolan transferred Ole Miss. Well, he put something out there. I hope you saw it on Twitter. And I think another kid that went to Andy and said the same thing, Evan Stewart saying, you better read your contracts really close. Oh, if you go man. to Andy, I did not you're see not that. Getting, yeah. You're not getting what they say you're getting. So are we going to see more of that going down the road? Probably, you know, you, you got the you Rashada kid, that whole story at, at Florida in the last year. So, I um I think there's more of this to come, and I would encourage any kid who's a you know really good player and a prospect, you know get that contract have have somebody read it over and see what's fact and what's fiction, and 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 sort of go from there. But I uh I tell you what I don't agree with. I've heard some fans and some coaches uh, because most people in the media are all for players getting everything they can. So what if they transfer a million times? So what if they're being bought out of high school? And, and that's just, you know, I'm not necessarily like that. But what I disagree with from what some fans have said is it's going to ruin the sport. We're not going to watch anymore. Well, Larry, right. there were more people watching college football this year than ever before. Yep. TV ratings were way up there. People love college football. And and they may not like some of the things that are happening or they may be old school or get off my lawn type of people. I've been accused of that sometimes, um, but they still love college football. It, it is intertwined with American society, certainly in the South and in the Midwest, and they're not going to quit watching. And I don't care how many times people bellyache and complain about it. They're going to continue watching because there's generations of families who've gone to see Clemson play, granddads and fathers and sons, you know, and next door neighbors and people you go to church with. And, and they that's just sort of what, it's part of the fabric of college football. What's made to me, it's what makes it so special. And I think when you look at the hard numbers, the TV ratings, how many people went to games now it's, it's more expensive than ever to go to a college football game, but people are going to all of a sudden quit paying attention and quit watching. That's that to me, that's never going to change. I mean, what's the age old thing you hear from fans, you know, long predating the era that we're currently in, like, you know, a Clemson fan would say, oh, I'd watch Georgia and Clemson play tiddlywinks. You know, like it, <laughs> they're going to keep watching. They might not like every aspect of it, but they're going to keep watching and going to games, I believe. Yeah, and I think it's um, it's just it's – just, it, it's changed. So many, every game is on TV now. I think I, I do think there's people who don't go to games now that maybe used to. Yep. 
as you get a little older, um, as it gets more expensive to go for a family. I mean, for a family of four, if you want to sit down on lower deck at Clemson or Tennessee or Georgia or Alabama and you're a family of four, that, that's a pretty heavy expenditure. Uh, and if you've got a 16-inch wide screen, big screen at your house, that's a lot easier. And I think that's why, as we start to talk about the future of college football, fans are going to, are going to want more good games. And, I mean, you know my theory, and not everybody agrees with it, but my theory is we're moving at some point, I can't give you a time frame, to one big conglomerate of college football, and, and it's going to be the the halves. And is the number, is that 32 teams? Is it 42? Is it 48? I mean, I don't know. And it's going to be separate from the NCAA. They'll have a commissioner. They'll have their own playoff. They'll have their own governance. Players will have representation to be able to get their piece of the pie and probably negotiations that change or contracts that are set up from, I don't know what, what time of uh, what type of windows or periods, but much like the NFL, it'll be the NFL model, and you'll have you'll have the same. You know, they'll get paid. You have the same. Well, we're not going to watch it's too much like the NFL. Yeah, they will watch because you know why? You're going to have one one week. Clemson is going to play uh, Texas. The next week they're going to play NC State. Mm-hmm. The next week they're going to play Tennessee. You know, the next week they're going to play Virginia Tech. They're going to be good games every week. It's going to be an again. It's going to be an NFL type model. And and yes, the smaller schools, uh, the FCS schools, certainly the schools that are, you know, like a Wofford or a, a Furman that that count on those games. If they go play Clemson or South Carolina, and they get big wads of money to do that, that's going to really kill them. And and I think if you start having to pay, the other part of this conversation, we could talk about this for hours. If schools start having to pay all these mo- all this money for for players, and and you know we go to that one, then sports are going to get cut. And there's just no way around it. Sports are going to start. Smaller sports are going to get cut. I mean, you tell me, Cal, Cal, and Stanford. And by the way, Stanford has one of the probably most well-rounded athletic departments in the country. I mean, they compete for championships, and you know, outside of football, and certainly the Olympic sports, and just about every sport. But you got SMU and you got Cal and you got Stanford coming to the ACC. You got Washington and Oregon going to the Big Ten. Now, I know they said they're setting up ways to sort of make this happen where travel is not as, as dicey. But how do you, if you're Oregon and you're playing Maryland <laughs> in a three, three game baseball series, <laughs> you know, in early March or, May, or middle of March or whatever, you tell me what that's going to be like for quote unquote the well being. And you've heard this. The well-being of the student athlete is that for the well-being of the student athlete? No, it's for it's all about money. So I still think football is going to break off, and I think because of what we're talking about, and then schools can sort of if you're basketball, if you're baseball, you know, if you're women's softball, you, you play schools more in your region, more in your ge- geographical location, and then football will be sort of its own entity. Well, the, and that's <laughs> the most mindless part of where things are headed. And what we've done so far is that the, the the right sequence of events, if smart people are orchestrating everything and it's not every man for himself, you know, this survivalist sort of approach from everybody, then you preserve the conference framework 
because that is what is geographically friendly to the smaller sports so they can travel, right? Like, and then, right. you, and then you let your big boys go have their own football conglomeration. But what we're doing is we're destroying the conferences first. <laughs> and so then what are the, what are the smaller sports left to do? Like to compete, who are they left to compete with? You know, it's just, it's, it's, it's insane. It's, it's all for, it's, it's all for self-preservation. Yeah. For these schools that, you know, they're worried about, you know, why is Florida state trying to get out of the ACC? They're worried they're going to get left behind. Yeah. You know, why, why, are, why is Oregon and Washington moving across the country, quote unquote, to the big 10? It's all about self-preservation so they can continue. Their athletic departments can continue to, to stay healthy and thrive. And that sort of is a big part of school. And, and to me, the hypocrisy is this. And I get it if you're, you know, you're trying to do what's best for your your school and your athletic department. But Larry, I don't want to hear another time a president or a chairman sitting in his office in his sort of three piece suit, you know, with a, you know, smoking a <laughs> pipe, saying that um, what we do here is we're educators and we do what's best for our student athletes, and we're never going to put them in in any position where we're, we're doing something that's yeah. not fair to them. That, that's a bunch of BS, and you know it, and I know it, and they know it. You know, it's all about what can we do, what can we do to fiscally and financially stay afloat and continue to make a lot of money. And that's, and people say we don't make money. That's, I mean, look at how, where does, where do the salaries come from for, for coaches? Well, they come from TV, they come from donations. I mean, all that's part of, you know, college sports. And I listen, I'm a junkie. I love college football. I love all college sports, but presidents and chancellors and people in those committees, kick this can down the road now for 20 years yeah. on, on pay on paying players. Like it was just going to magically go away. Well, it was never going to go away. They, they had no plan for it. Uh, no one had any foresight. There was nobody that there, there were no forward thinking people. There were not enough football centric people involved in those committees to say, Hey guys, this is what's going to happen. You know, they didn't believe it that, yeah, well, sure. These guys should benefit on name, image and likeness, which they should, but the the stupidity and the na- naivety to think that this was not going to become part of the recruiting process, which I've talked to people who were in those rooms or part of those conversations, is asinine. Yeah, it was always going to become part of the recruiting process. It's wild, um, you know. Getting back to the fans, the idea of fans having to—I mean, having to foot the bill. A lot of the bill for NIL is crazy. And I think that sort of hits on part of what you're talking about. You know, you had 20 years to sort of figure this out. And I would even put some of this on on the universities themselves because these new oceans of revenue came forth in the form of TV multimedia deals over the last, what, about a decade or so, decade plus. And... I mean, I remember writing like, okay, this money's great and all, but they need to do something for the fans. You need to give the fans a break. But the fans have gotten gotten no break. Instead, even pre-NIL, it was, oh, my, my ticket, you know, the cost of just having the right to buy a ticket is going up. Oh, the ticket prices are going up. Oh, the parking, all this and that. And it's not proportional or commensurate, usually, I don't think, with their increases in 
in in income and discretionary spending. And so then now, in the middle of a process where it seems like almost everyone involved in the process is getting enriched significantly, um, coaches, administrators, now players, fans have to foot another part of the bill. And it's like, you know, the guy that I talked to last week, C.D. Davies, said that he detects what he called donor exhaustion, not just at Clemson, but everywhere. And and it's totally justifiable. You agree? No, I um, I do think, and it, you know, I said a minute ago, let's let's see where we are two, three years down the road, and then assess everything. I think that's a part of it because I think this is right. And your guest last week probably has a lot more insight than I do. I think right now, if you're donating to collectives, that's not tax deductible. Hmm. I don't, I don't think it is anymore. So if I'm a guy that owns my business and I'm donating for there's a, there's a fund there to build a new basketball practice facility or to improve the locker room, you know, the women's basketball locker room or both, you know, both teams basketball locker room. And, you know, I think if you're donating to that, I think that that fund, the, the Clemson fund or the, the Georgia fund, then that is tax deductible. But are you going to do that and continue to donate money to the collective to, you know, to provide players with money and name, image, and likeness? I think that's those. That's one of those questions. And again, let's see. Let's see how that plays out over the next year or two. I, and and the, the, I like that phrase, donor fatigue. I think there is that. I think you're starting to hear that more and more. And that doesn't mean that donor is not going to go watch the games or still be a part of, of going to see the games, but anding up the kind of money that it's going to take now to sort of continue to play that NIL game at the, at the level that some of these schools are. I think more and more guys and gals who give that kind of money um, are going to sit there and think long and hard about it, whether they, whether they want to and, and whether they can. You know, are you going to give, you know, a couple hundred grand every year so the, to the collective so they can help buy players? I mean, I don't know. I guess we're going to find out. That's why I think, Larry, people say inside, you know, athletic departments and coaches and even in universities – they suggested this is this model is not sustainable and because of what you're talking about. Uh, and I guess, uh, I guess we're going to find out, you know, and, and maybe a guy like Tyler from Spartanburg decides <laughs> instead of giving 300 grand next year, he's only going to get 200 grand. <laughs> oh man, that's a good transition into, into the big story last week. I guess if first we could, I'm just fascinated by by your role and your ability to um, to be able to break a lot of news uh, across college football. A lot of that, of course, is based on relationships you have with the various folks involved. But this was a uh, this is a obviously a massive story, and I'll I mean, 20 years from now, I'll remember where I was when I saw your tweet on that Wednesday late after mid to late afternoon, I was sitting on my couch in my basement and it was almost like I didn't believe what I just saw that you said he was about to go into a meeting and, and, uh, and tell his team he was hanging it up. Can you give any kind of window into just behind the curtain? Obviously only what you're comfortable with, but just how you position yourself to, 
to be able to get that, to be able to get something that, gosh, hundreds of people, hundreds, hundreds of media people across the country would, would die to have, um, because that's not, um, it's not just the product of something that just happens in a day. It's a, it, it, it's a product of years worth of, um, building a relationship and, or relationships, plural, I should say. Um, so if you don't mind, just take me back to the, those, that monumental day and what sort of led up to it just from your recollections and your insight. The short answer would be that, uh, I've been around a while and I've had a chance to get to know Nick Saban, a lot of people that he's close to. And, and that program, I spent a lot of time with the last 17 years covering Alabama because they've been so good. And there's been one coach there. See, that that's the difference, Larry, is they've had, much like Clemson and Dabo, um, they've had one coach. Now, they've had a lot of turnover on their coaching staff, but they're internally, they're a lot of the same people are there that have been there for a long time. And, you know, when you have a chance to get to know somebody over, over a period of years like that, especially when you're in the national media, because listen, everybody, schools and coaches and administrators always want stuff out there nationally. I'm not, I'm not naive to that. And, you know, if I were working at, you know, the Birmingham newspaper or, you know, I probably wouldn't have as much of a chance to get that story, you know, so I'm, I'm realistic when it comes to that, but I just think having those relationships have been around for a while and, and getting to know people. I, I had a, a little bit of a heads up that he was seriously, seriously considering it this year. I still, at the end of the day, I really wondered down deep if he would do it, if he'd pull the trigger. I mean, I, each of the last two years, I know he's he's left Tuscaloosa after the season and gone and talked about it with his wife and discussed it, you know, whether this was the time. And, and I sort of got a little heads up that, you know what, this time it's pretty serious. And and then found out that morning that, that he um, – was going to do it unless he changed his mind. And uh, the, the crazy thing with Nick Saban is you know, he's never going to like tip his hand <laughs> to anybody there in the building. He's interviewing coaches and talking to players and doing his normal routine all the way up until he goes in to tell his team he's retiring. So, you know, I had, a, had a, an inkling that that was getting ready to happen and just was sort of ready. He's so old school um, that the most important thing to him, and he didn't tell me this, but others around him told me this, is he did not want this to get out before he told his team. Mm-hmm. That that was the most important thing to him. So he wanted to be the one to tell his players that he was retired. He didn't want to read it on Twitter. He didn't want to see it on the bottom scroll of ESPN. He didn't want to see it. Or, of course, he, does, he never looks at Twitter. He just didn't want to get out there for public consumption before he told them. And... Once he told him, and he was a very short, I don't think it was quite 10 minutes, and then he turned it over to the AD to talk to him there in the team meeting room um, is when you know I got word that he had indeed told his team. And that's that was, again, says a lot about him. And that says a lot about co- a lot of coaches, period, not just Nick Saban. Is they always want to be able to tell their team. It's hard to do that, Larry, in this day and age, as you know, because stuff gets out there so fast. I mean, Kevin DeBoer wasn't able to tell his team Right before it got out that he was going to to, uh, to Alabama to replace Saban, but it's it's rare that that happens. But for him, he kept it so quiet, and it was there was such a tight circle of people who knew. And I mean, I can tell you, I was talking to people on Monday that once he got back, people that have been around that that staff and that building for a while, and and they were like, I don't 
you know, he certainly, if he's retiring, he certainly haven't, hasn't let on or he's not acting like it. He's, he's sort of doing everything the way he's always doing it. So there are a bunch of people. I think most people in that building, um, I won't say were shocked, but they were caught off guard when, when they went in there in that team meeting and told them that. His AD was that he, he'd been given some notice so he could start working off his list, which all, I mean, any good AD already has a list, right? And then you're sort of, all right, I got to, I don't know how many days you had, but I, I need to, I need to really get my current list up to date, start doing some behind the scenes work just to be ready. And I think Greg Byrne was ready. I think he knew the two or three guys right off the bat that he wanted to really zero in on. And, uh, cause I think Nick was, was going to do that. was going to give him that type of, uh, that type of heads up. You know, to the AD because you never want to get caught flat-footed. Nor should any good AD ever get caught flat-footed in this day and age, right? Especially when you got a guy like Saban, who you know is is fairly close to retirement. You should always be ready, and I think Vern was ready to go uh, make that next hire. Do you have any kind of guess on how how much of a heads up Vern had? Um, I bet you he knew when they went to the postseason that Nick was going to think long and hard after the season whether the time was right. Uh, I would say he knew, you know, he knew that that was a real possibility. And um, and then, of course, when they went to, you know, they played on. Let's see, they played on. I was I was out there January first. Went back home the next day. Had a team meeting. The day or early that next morning, and then Saban was around for a while. And then he went to his home with his wife in Florida for for four days. And I I would say once he got back, he had told Vern that that's that's what he was. Unless he changed his mind, that's what he was going to do. So you know, I think he had. I think Greg Byrne had. You know, I don't know a month, couple weeks. Um, to really start doing his, his due diligence on who we who we wanted, who was realistic. You know, check stuff like buyouts, Larry. Mm-hmm. Just things that probably your average, you know, your average fan, even the media, sometimes you don't think about. Well, what's what's Dan Lanning's buyout? What's Kalen DeBoer's buyout? What's Davo Swinney? Who are the guys that I absolutely don't want because of various reasons? You know, maybe background checks they've done before, things they know about in the coach's past. And then you have your board. It's, I guess it's much like a recruiting board, right? You have your board right there in front of you. And you circle the four guys. You know, who can we realistically get? Who do I want? Who do I like the best? Uh, who, who's a good uh, – the word fits used a lot, but who, who do we think can best come in here and handle the scrutiny of replacing Nick Saban? See, I, that's the thing that, for me, everybody says, well – they could have got this guy or that guy, or this guy would be great. Well, there are a lot of people that don't want to be part of that. You know, let's take a guy like, you know, well, let's take Dabo, let's take Dan Lanning, um, guys that have, now that's two sort of ends of the spectrum. Dabo's been there for a long time. He's won two championships there. He can pretty much do what he wants to. He's got it set up the way he wants it set up. He loves living in that part of the country, loves living there at Clemson. Um, and then you got Dan Lanning, who's been at Oregon for two years, uh, and has right and within two years made Oregon a national power. Uh, he's got Phil Knight. He's got all the resources he wants. Uh, you know, he's 
getting ready to go into the Big Ten. So all those factors, as you start to to look at who you want to be the next coach, and oh, by the way, he's got a $22 million buyout. Uh, if you're an AD, these are all the things sort of you're looking at, who's realistic. You know, do you want a guy that's under 40? You know, do you want a guy that's that's been a head coach for a long time? Dan Lang has only been a head coach for two years. DeBoer, I think, has been one down for nine, and he's done it at every level. He was at NAIA and then Division Two. He was at Fresno State. And within two years at Washington, he got the Huskies to the national championship game. And as you're starting to go down your list and put that list together and finalize it, all these are factors that you're looking at. But um, I, uh, I think pretty, I think pretty, pretty quickly, the t- the two guys that that uh, Greg Byrne had zeroed in on were DeBoer and Mike Norvell. I think those and those are the two guys that they talked to. Upstate foodies want to take a moment to talk to you about our favorite taco spot, Willie Taco. Five locations across the upstate. This award-winning team has been serving up fresh taco fusion for a solid decade now. The chefs at Willie Taco utilize the freshest, most creative, and sometimes unexpected ingredients in their kitchens. Come see why Southern Living, Garden and Gun, and Food and Wine Magazine are raving about Willie Taco and their signature offerings, such as their Southern Tide, Crispy Avocado, Nashville Hot Chicken Tacos, literally flavors you will not find anywhere else, folks. And don't forget about the cocktails, super fresh margaritas, ice cold cerveza, and over 80 tequilas served up daily from behind the bar. So don't wait, folks. Your Willie Taco Familia is ready to serve you up their twist on funky fresh fusion. It's the Willie Way. Another loyal supporter of the Dubcast is Blackacre Law Firm in Greenville, a subsidiary of Parm Smith and Archenthold. Blackacre helps South Carolina residents achieve their dreams of home ownership by providing experienced professional representation for real estate closings. Attention to detail is crucial in real estate state law, Blackacre is committed to making sure nothing gets by them preparing residential or commercial closings. Blackacre also offers estate planning services for their clients in the Greenville area. Find out more about Blackacre at 864-326-3507. Want to share a quick word about Founders Federal Credit Union? If you've been to a sporting event in Clemson, you've probably heard about Founders already. They are the official credit union partner of the Clemson Tigers. In addition to that, all Clemson faculty, staff, and students are eligible for membership as well as IPTA members. Its office is located beside the Walmart Neighborhood Market on Old Greenville Highway in Clemson. For more information, go to foundersfcu.com. Can we go back to Wednesday morning, sort of to your process, and putting putting everybody in your shoes, when you get that sort of tip, um, I think I know the answer to this, but the general listener probably doesn't because they're not in this business. Can you just sort of give some insight into decision-making strategy? Like, okay, you get this tip. Why don't you, what is keeping you from putting a report out there saying Nick Saban is considering or could retire or is leaning toward retirement? What makes you wait until it, I mean, you've already explained it. He wants to tell his team first, but I just want to maybe go a little deeper into some of the strategy that's involved there and sort of sitting on it. I mean, I, I know exactly why, you know, just from the sort of the feel that you have for those situations. But um, I don't know, just to maybe share some, some insight into that, if you don't mind. Well, I mean, total transparency. I, I mean, I didn't have all day. I had probably 
two hours. Hey, are you, you know, where are you today? Where are you going to be? And I'm like, uh-oh. You know? <laughs> you know? And that was probably about, I don't know, two hours maybe. Wow. And, and, but to answer your question, you know, even if I'd put it out that, that Nick Saban, you know, is considering retirement uh-huh. and then he, and then he doesn't, then that probably doesn't put me in the best light, you know, because things change, man. And you know that coach searches and guys leaving versus not leaving coach is going to leave or retire and not retire. I mean, I've, I've had millions of stories on hiring a coach or a coach thing about retiring where they changed their mind the last minute. And that was, that was a part of it. And then part of, part of doing this is there's always a little bit of give and take. And mm-hmm. I knew again that if he did indeed go through it and retire, that he wanted to tell his players first. And I knew I had a better chance of, you know, if you're going to get that, you know, you, you probably need to, to play ball a little bit because I, you know, it, it's like saying, well, this coach or, or Clemson's likely to leave the ACC and you've got, and Larry Williams has got a great source telling you that, but you know, it's also sort of fluid too. And it mm-hmm. might change, you know, are you going to throw that out there? You know, sometimes it's better to, to wait in our business and make sure the sausage is made before you say, hey, this sausage is made, it's ready to be served, than to throw something out there while it's being made. Because some things can change, you know. And I think that's part of it as a journalist. And I, I, listen, I, we, the two of us have talked in many situations. You're constantly wrestling with that. When's the time to go with it versus when you know something's done? And Because I, I never want to, you know, let, let's just say, for example, I threw out there, Sources are telling ESPN that Nick Saban's considering retirement, strongly considering retirement. Well, n- number one, that's not a huge revelation. I uh-huh. think most people knew that he was closer to retiring as opposed to not. You know, he, he's going to be 73 next football season. And he sort of, you know, you sort of knew that. So that's number one. Number two, if you throw that out there and he doesn't, then again, looking at it from my perspective, then what's the, the, the way people are going to remember that is, well, Chris Lowe reported that he was considering retirement, and he didn't. Well, Chris Lowe, well, he was wrong. Or he had bad sources, mm-hmm. or he jumped the gun. So I guess I'm just a little bit more conservative, I would say. I want to make sure you get it right. Um, back when I was, you know, back when, Fred Flintstone was really a real person and Barney Rubble. And I was in, I was in J school, journalism school. I can remember a professor always saying, Hey, if your mom says that she loves you, you better get it from a second source before you write it. So, okay. The two hours after you get the heads up, I know, I mean, I've been in some similar situations and I know with me, man, that is hard <laughs> the waiting because you're like, all right, I kind of feel like I'm the only one who knows this now, but is somebody else going to find out? You know, it is is this going to get out? Am I going to am I not going to have this first? And and you know, we don't live for uh, you know having everything every single thing first like it's not the end of the world, but it is part of our it's a big part of our job, right? So mm-hmm. I'm just curious yeah. 
you're such a veteran at all this stuff. When you have, when you get a tip and you're sort of just playing the waiting game on such a monstrous story, are you nervous? Are you just sort of at peace or like, just give me, what, what is that like? No, not at peace. Cause you're right. I mean, it, it, the AD could have told somebody, somebody in Nick's family, his yep. daughter or son could have told a, a friend of theirs, Hey dad, you're tired today. And they go on Twitter and people, you know, and, and there's fake accounts out there. I mean, unfortunately there's fake social media accounts. And uh, I think people, had hinted at it all year or the, even the year before. So I, I wouldn't say I was at peace, but I knew that I had a really good feeling that um, he, he didn't change his mind that I would get it. You know, if not, I mean, <laughs> minutes in our business are, can be pretty critical, but you know, I really don't Larry get hung up on this and maybe I'm in the minority if I get it and I get it from somebody I trust, I put it out there. I, I'm not scouring the internet or scouring mm-hmm. Twitter. I guess it's X now to see if you had it a minute before or anybody else had it a minute before. Even like when I put it out there, I didn't know for sure that I was the first one. Right. Now I, I knew in my phone and, and, you know, I had 260 messages within <laughs> like 15 mes- minutes that I probably was. But I promise you, I did not go when I got, hey, when I got word that he had told his team, um, because think about it, kids, his players in the room, they all have Twitter. They're all, they're all on Twitter. They could easily, Hey, I'm sitting here with coach Saban right now. And he's, he's saying, or, or you could call their roommate or their dad or somebody they know, maybe in the media coach Saban's telling us right now he's retiring. And the immediacy of everything right now has changed and our world's changed everything. But I swear, man, I do not go on Twitter and look and see, all right, has Larry reported this Has sports illustrated as Yahoo, I get right. it. I go with it. I go with it. And yeah. I know in our business, man, it's 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 sort of crazy. Everybody's worried about, well, this person had it two minutes before that person. Or this person sometimes had it a minute or five minutes or whatever. You know, Larry Williams was first on this. Yeah. I think that's the silliest thing in the world because who are the only ones that keep up with that? <laughs> Media. <laughs> that's exactly right. The people that are on, there are people that are on, Twitter and social media. So those of us, we're the only one that knows if someone had it two minutes or 10 minutes or one minute. And I, I think that's so, that's one of the dumbest things in our profession. And I'm, I've done this for almost 40 years that we all get caught up in. And I've been guilty of that too. Okay. I'm not pointing the finger at everybody else, but nobody knows at the end of the day. And there's, there's so much time and effort spent. Well, I think I've even asked you before. I think you've had something, on a Clemson, and I said, "Hey, did you have this first, or did, mm-hmm. when did you have this?" Yeah, um, and because I, I don't know, and the, and the reality is now with so many other team sites out there covering specific teams, like they're at Clemson. A lot of times, you have three different, sometimes four different websites or team sites that cover a school, and, and you guys are your board is behind a paywall, right? Yep. I mean, so if I'm Larry Williams and I'm right work for Tiger Illustrated, I'm not giving stuff out for free why would you right you know so you might have something on your message board that clemson's hiring you know whomever to be their defensive coordinator or offensive coordinator you know and 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 you had it before anybody and it's on your message board because you want your subscribers to be the ones 
that know first, which is that's the way it should be. Well, I don't necessarily know that. Same with you know Ohio State, their message board. So sometimes, you know, <laughs> again, we're sort of getting in the weeds here. If I'm looking around to see, well, who had this first? Well, you know what? Ross Dellinger at Yahoo had it two minutes ago. You know, or, or even, you know, on, on my staff, Pete Thamel had it four minutes ago. And, and I say, well, and, and I'm not a huge tweeter unless it's news or it's hard news. And I'll say, you know, um, whatever. You know, Ryan Day has hired Bill O'Brien to be his offensive coordinator. You know, such and such had it first. I can't tell you the number of times, the number of times that I have done that. And I, again, I try not to get into the weeds with that, but I do try to be fair that I've had someone call me or text me that covers that team on a team website, sort of like your site, and say, hey, we actually had that 20 minutes ago. We had that last night. Mm-hmm. Maybe not last night. That's probably not a good example because it wouldn't hold, you know, but you know, we, we wrote that. We had an exclusive, exclusive story. 15 or 20 or 30 minutes ago. Well, I wouldn't know that. So again, I'm just, the reason I tell that story is I think it's silly that we get caught up in trying to figure out who had it first, because at the end of the day, you really don't know who had it first with all the different media now that exist. And certainly the team site media, because you guys are the ones that almost always are first or right there close to the top of reporting the nuts and bolts of the team. And I think the broader lesson, Chris just from for the sake of 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 working <laughs> is you keep your head down and you work you know you you, you don't sit there and spend four, 13 hours a day in the conversation because what does that give you like wh- how how is that productive how is that constructive how does that help you do your job versus spending your time with your head down talking to people <laughs> privately, you know, trying to figure out what's really going on. Um, so I think it, whereas you might lose something by not every now and then, not knowing who has something first, I think you gain 500% more by not being in the in the cesspool <laughs> or echo chamber that is Twitter and all that stuff. So yeah. I, th- I think I, I agree with your your philosophy. Um, let's get yeah, my gauge. My gauge is always. I'll, this is the last thing I'll say. My gauge has always been this: is when I report something, or if I'm Larry Williams and report something, or if I'm Mark Schleybaugh and report something, or Pete Thamel and I report something. You know what I want the reaction to be is: well, I saw something out there a minute ago. Or I saw something out there twenty minutes ago. But if Larry Williams is reporting, and I know it's right. Yes. You know, he's going to do his due diligence. He's going to talk to people directly involved. And I know that's right. That That's always been my gauge is, is I want to, when I report something, you know, I want people to know that it's right. And I'm not guessing, I'm not quoting a guy down the street who has a brother who once dated a girl who knew the head coach. Um, that That's always been the thing that I, I have in my mind before I press the button on a story that I know that I've talked to the people I needed to talk to, and this is 100% right. Whatever the exhilaration of getting a big scoop or whatever, the far more profound (laughs) uh, impact is felt on the negative side. The memory 
Oh, when you missed on something, got something wrong. That's what fuels me is I just, I'm paranoid of being wrong. And I think you're, you're probably in the same, in the same boat. Absolutely. That, that, that's what, that's what keeps me up at night. You know, being, you know, I, I still do it. And if I report something and I know it's right, but you know, nobody says anything or the school doesn't confirm it or, or they're telling other media, well, no, no, nothing's been decided on that. I mean, you've been in that boat before. We, we, nothing's been decided on that. That during that interim, man, you're like, oh, your heart again. I, this is my 39th year in the business. You're just sitting there thinking, you know, gosh, did, did I miss something? Did, did mm-hmm. I, did this change somehow in the last 20 minutes or 30 minutes? But it's like a coach. I mean, how many coaches have you talked to that tell you they they remember the losses a whole hell of a lot more than they remember right. the wins? All right, we got to get into the Dabo angle of the Alabama story Thursday. Oh, I guess let's see that Friday, two days after Saban's retirement, uh, we reported that Alabama had reached out to Dabo the morning after, um, the morning after the retirement. So Thursday morning. And I have reason to believe it was Saban actually who called him. Um, to ask, hey, how would you be interested? You know, how open would the door be? And it's just fascinating on a lot of levels because all our, you know, I'm only standing on what I reported. I'm not making any conclusions, right? I'm not saying, oh, Dabo turned him down, you know? I'm also not saying, oh, he had zero shot. Uh, there's no way they would have hired him. I don't know. I have no idea. Like, had he said, yes, I'm interested, let's – Let's take it to second base. It would be crazy for me to put it past him to be able to go into a room and sell himself and his vision to folks representing his alma mater. So I'm just curious. I mean, like you already said, the first two names apparently on Burns' list were Norvell and DeBoer. The sense that I get from the Tuscaloosa side of things is that maybe maybe Byrne wasn't all too enamored of some of Dabo's, some of his, I don't want to say baggage, but maybe some of the theatrics and antics, the Tyler from Spartanburg stuff, maybe, maybe makes you wonder about, Oh, well, can, can he handle, <laughs> can he handle something here? That's like Clemson times a hundred. Uh, and then we're not even getting into the NIL portal sort of perceptions. So I'm just curious for your take on Dabo's sort of being contacted. Um, and, how far it could have gone had Dabo maybe been expressed a little more interest. And I mean, it's just, um, it's, it's a fascinating part of the storyline, just given the, given all the context there with Dabo and Alabama and Saban and all. All those examples you just gave, all the things you just, just, just discussed, um, I'm told were absolutely part of the, um, vetting process or part of the reasoning that Greg Byrne did not want to go down that road. Not, but not that he didn't think Dabo was a great coach and had done a lot of, you know, look at what he's done, his track record. But I think all the things you just mentioned were, were part of it. Um, I'm also told like you by someone very close to Dabo that there was some contact. I don't know a hundred percent that it was Nick Saban, but what he reported, I would certainly not, be floored because those two have a very good relationship. There's respect. They used to own homes 
right there near each other. I think in the Boca Grande area in Florida, I think they had some meals together down there. They used to have that. They used to have that sort of standing bet that if whoever won uh, or whoever lost had to pay dinner for the next time they went down there to their home. So I know that those two were uh, had a, a really good rapport. So if Nick called him, and I, again, I have no reason to think that he didn't, then I would think that uh, he was doing it just, just to sort of check and see. Because you're crazy if you're Greg Byrne or anybody at Alabama if you don't use Nick Saban as a resource. Right. And, hey, who, who, who have you coached against or who have you recruited against or who do you know in the profession that you think it could come in here and continue to win at a high, high level. So I do think, well, again, I, I haven't talked to the same, probably the same people you have, but I have talked to somebody very close to, to Davo who said that there was someone who reached out. I've also talked to somebody that I trust that not necessarily Greg Byrne, but somebody else there in the Alabama inner circle reached out to Mike Loxley at Maryland about his interest in the job. Uh, again, not necessarily that it was Greg Byrne, because I'm told it was not Greg Byrne. So in coach searches, that happens sometimes. Influential donors, boosters, hey, would you be in, would you be uh, up to coming? If you do, I think maybe I could talk to Byrne, or maybe we can sort of lean on him a little bit. Um, and I'm not saying <laughs> that Saban was saying he was going to lean on Greg Byrne if Davos said he wanted to come, but that's just sort of the way coach searches, especially at a place like Alabama. That's the way they go sometimes. And if you're Greg Byrne, he's in a tough spot. He, he needed to get somebody he felt like that he could work with, someone that he felt like could come in and continue to win at a high level. And, and I think the big thing with him is he wanted someone that had the right mindset and a mentality and disposition that they're going to be able to put up with the incredible scrutiny that, that now DeBoer is going to be under. I mean, what's going to happen the first time he loses a game? Georgia rolls in there on September 28th, <laughs> I think. And how do they deal with that? I mean, how's he dealing with what's going on now? They've lost two, two of their better young players. The top freshman recruit and quarterback has now said he's entering the, the portal. Um, how, how does the new coach, because he knew some of that was going to happen. How do they deal with all that? And I think it's is as Burns sort of waded through all those decisions. And I was told he had sort of had his eye on the board now for a couple of years. You know, really liked him. And um, I think all those were factors. But no, Dabo and, and you know, people that are really, really close to Dabo have told me for years now that he he was not gonna leave Clemson. Mm-hmm. And that this he just was just too good and just too you know, it just sort of fits Dabo to a T. Now, the last couple of years, you could sort of hear the frustration in his voice about, hey, you know, we, we don't need the bandwagon people. Dabo be a Dabo, right? We, you know, all we've done is we've done this, 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 and this. You know, sort of as you st- started to hear that frustration, it's only natural that you or me or fans or anybody, administrators at Clemson, are thinking, you know, is he sort of sending smoke signals that, you know what? Maybe I would look to leave. Uh, at the end of the day, though, I never felt like Dabo was going to leave. I, I just didn't. Larry, he's just—he's done too much, too much heavy lifting there. So much of his heart 
soul, blood, everything is in that program. Uh, he's taken that program to heights. And I know they won under, under Danny there in 81, but he, he took that program, has taken that program to heights that they never enjoyed. And, um, you know, beat, consistently beating SEC teams, consistently beating up on just about everybody in the ACC. And, you know, every once in a while, even in a place like that, I understand that the, the landscape's changing. You're going to have a year where you're not as good, and this was that year. I mean, see, last year, I always looked at it like they won the ACC, so it's hard to call the 22 season a, a failure. Mm-hmm. You know, they lost, yeah, they lost to South Carolina, and I know that doesn't sit well with Clemson fans, but they still won the ACC championship. How many games they win, 11? Yes, 11, including the ACC championship. You know, so sometimes you better be careful what you ask for as a fan base. And Dabo is going to bite back. That's just his personality, man. He's never <laughs> going to change. He's always going to bite back, and he's stubborn as the day is long. But part of those qualities probably have what has made him so successful there at Clemson. He's he's he is who he is. I, but long story short, I never had any information during that whole process that he was a legitimate realistic candidate to be the next head coach at Alabama. Nor did I have that Lane Kiffin was. Neither one of those I was told would be the head coach at Alabama for people that I trust. Um, and, and I was told pretty quickly, even though I, I think Lanning might have sort of halfway been on the list, that he, to not include him either, that it wasn't going to happen for buyout reasons, the fact he'd only been a head coach for two years, and I think Byrne wanted somebody who had been a head coach and had run his shop for longer than that. Hypothetically, <clears throat> your best guess as to what happens if Dabo says, yeah, let's let's talk, and then Saban goes to Byrne and says, he's interested, and honestly, Greg, I think Dabo's the most qualified to handle everything that there is to handle here. Do you think, I mean, do you have any guess as to how things might have unfolded from there? Well, it's, uh, you know, and the coaches love hypotheticals. I know that. If uh, Dabo <laughs> would have told Nick, yeah, hey, I, I absolutely 100% would love to come back and coach Alabama. You know, I, you know I'm on board. But, yeah, I think Nick would have gone to Burn and said, listen, again, if this is how it all shook out, that I think, I think Dabo is ready. Um, I, I don't. I still don't think because I don't think Nick's wired to be a guy who's going to push. I mean, everybody yeah. said he wanted to name his successor. I don't see. I don't. My conversations with him, he didn't want any part of that. He wanted to be a resource. Hey, reach out to this guy. What do you think about that guy? But I don't think he was going to ever say this is a guy that you'll hire. This is this is a guy I would hire if I were in your shoes. I just. That's just not Nick. And I think he would have told Byrne, but again, based on what I know, I think Byrne would have gone the direction he did. I don't, I don't, I don't think he would have, I don't think he would have hired Dabo. Um, again, not because he didn't think he was a great coach, but just at this time, he didn't feel like that was the right way to go. Listen, Lane had some people there, not, not a lot of people inside, but he had some, I know he had some money people who would have loved to have seen him there. Yeah. And I, I, Larry, I think Lane would have probably done pretty well yep. there. Yep. You know, just if you ask me, 
total transparency, I think. Now, there are things you got to put up with Lane, you know, a little bit like Dabo. You know, there's, you're just going to have to accept some things. They're going to be the way they are. But both of those guys have proven Dabo certainly has been more accomplished than Lane. He's won championships. That they can win at spots. Because, you know, it wasn't like Clemson was a national juggernaut, you know, when he took over. Um, certainly Ole Miss hasn't been, and, and Lane's won 10 or more two of the last three years. But I do think that Lane would have um, would have fared pretty well there. Now, how, how, would it have been would it have been one of those sort of you know huge fireworks that go off and everything's just right and you're winning at the big level and bam something happens he's out of there possible um, would it have been the same way with Dabo come in there boy they're still re- relevant they get in the playoff and then the first time they lose to Ole Miss or lose to Mississippi State. And, and, you know, have a couple, have a two game loser streak and they're on him on the radio and he starts firing back, you know, oh, he starts boy. shooting back. You know, I don't know how that goes over there. <laughs> what if um, one more hypothetical, what if DeBoer says, no, thanks. Who do they turn to? Do they go crawl into Kiffin? Like I can't well, think know, of at, anybody else. At, at that point, you know, because Debo, listen, Debo is, 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 He's a smart guy, and it was, sometimes he comes across like, "Oh, shucks, I'm just old." Dabo's not dumb, you know. He, we talked several years ago about this, the two of us. I'm sure you've had conversations, and he'd always laugh. Who wants to go in behind that good guy? You know, just sort of joking, laughing. He said, "Plus, I got a great deal here." But you know, if it continues to be where maybe Dabo doesn't feel as loved as much, and it doesn't work out for DeBoer. Maybe that next time Dabo says, what's the old cliche? You don't want to be yeah. the guy that follows the guy, but maybe it's better to be the guy who follows the guy who followed the guy. Right. You know, and, and at that point, you know, and, and what kind of clout does Greg Byrne have at that time that he swung and missed on his first guy? Maybe the old guard moves in. Maybe, you know, other people said, listen, we got to be a guy who's done it for a long time. He knows this place. He's recruited the South. Uh, you know, so I could see that. And I, you know, I don't know about Lane. I mean, I, I think there's enough opposition because he was just there. You know, had some issues. He got, you know, I mean, Saban fired him. Think about this. He got fired the week before the national championship <laughs> game. Crazy. Crazy. But that doesn't mean, but that doesn't mean I don't want people to hear the wrong thing that I don't think Lane could do it or he would be somehow a failure. I think Lane would have, I, I think there'd be a lot of people if Lane went in there to be head coach in the SEC. And they probably don't, a lot of them don't like him, coaches I'm talking about, ADs and other places who would wince if Lane got that job because he would have a Rolls Royce to drive and he would drive the hell out of it. <laughs> Joey Freshwater back in Tuscaloosa. Yeah. So, you know, it's always, a, it comes down to this. How does, how does the board do? You know, do they continue to, He's got a little bit more margin for error, I think, Larry, because of the playoff now goes to 12 teams. He doesn't have to win the SEC title. If you were, wouldn't you say if you're in the SEC most years, if you're in the top three or four, you're going to get in with seven out large yeah. spots? And so you have a little bit more margin for error there. It's probably the same with the Big Ten, too. Um, and getting into the playoff is, is going to be easier than it has been. 
I mean, Bama would have gotten in two years ago. Georgia would have gotten in this year. I mean, Clemson would have gotten in probably two years ago, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's going to be easier than it has been, more realistic. And I think that helps a lot too. But you're not going to have to, you know, you're going to have, you can have a hiccup or two during the season, you know, and still be able to get into play for a title. But you know, again, I, I know I keep referencing this. Let them get in next year as like the seventh seed or the eighth seed and lose to Wisconsin. Or, you know, I'm just throwing out names here in the first round of playoffs. It'll be like um, Doomsday there in <laughs> Alabama. Those fans will go crazy. And and it's you know Saban's still going to be working there. One thing they better not do is have him inside Bryant Denny in any visible location that the television cameras can zoom in on. After they, if they're struggling, because oh boy, that'll be a mess. Yeah, and I think he too has the Nick's got is seasoned enough that he's not going he's not going to put himself into a position where he seems to be the guy looking over his shoulder, the, the new coach's shoulder. I mean, he's, listen, that's his school. They're going to, he and his wife are going to stay there in Tuscaloosa. That's going to be their home base. So they got, they're going to spend a lot more time down in Florida. But yeah, I mean, you know, the cameras will be looking for him in all the games. The first game, yeah. the board coaches, and certainly any time that they're playing poorly, uh, it, they're going to be searching for him. And, you know, there'll be a debriefing period for saving, you know, just not being a coach and, not being out there every day. I think that's going to be hard for him, Larry. Just not all of a sudden not being a part of, of running that program and practice and recruiting and evaluating and staff meetings and preparing. I mean, that's, I mean, he's done that forever and he's done it at such a high level and he's just almost maniacal about the way he goes about that. And now he's not doing it anymore. It's, there, there's going to be a bit of a, a hole, a vacuum there for him that he's going to have to figure out how to feel it Chris this has been awesome as always uh, our conversations I always enjoy them and I, I really appreciate you sharing so much of your time uh, to be on the podcast yep well, enjoy it Larry it's always good to catch up my friend CeeLo is the man I would love to be a fly on the wall as he's going through something like that in the reporting on Nick Saban and the, all the process that leads up to that bombshell news that came. Maybe he'll write a book one day after he retires. Sort of a tell-all. That'll, of course, be really interesting. Appreciate the support of our sponsors for helping make this happen through the years. Also, thanks mostly to every one of you for hitting that play button. Really appreciate it. Cheers. Cheers.